1: Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, this segment, I gotta say, uh, understand and compare common uh, debt management options. It's—I don't know if it's a scary title, but it sounds pretty complicated. And I know the reason why we're doing doing this is because. It can be for folks. It can be overwhelming looking at strategies and stuff. And and the thing that I've learned in, in talking with you now, Blair, is that you're so good at explaining and assessing situations for folks, debt situations for folks, um, that, that's, that that's probably one of the most gratifying things that you do for yourself, right? Because you know people walking in the door go, oh my gosh, I have no idea what to do at this point.
0: Yeah, you know, Elaine, that it probably is the most satisfying part of the job, you know, is is making the order out of chaos, so to speak. So with someone, you know, not knowing where to turn and having a bunch of concepts, you know, really swirling around in their head um, to really solidify that down, you know, here are the options. Here's what you can pursue to get out of debt. Some of them include a licensed insolvency trustee services, some of them don't, and you can make an open-eyed, clear-headed discussion or decision on how you want to proceed, but that's how it starts with the consultation with the trustees. You just come in, you explain all the things that you're facing in your financial life, and then the trustee assesses which of these options are available to you and what's the implications of you moving forward. So um, usually by the end of a first meeting, which might be half an hour or an hour maximum, we've got a really good sense, a really good estimation of how these options are going to apply to an individual in their circumstances.
1: And I want to throw in this. This is really important. It was to me when we first started talking was that a licensed insolvency trustee is the only person in this country that can deal with bankruptcy and consumer proposals. And of course, we talk about consumer proposals all the time and, and bankruptcy even. But, but, but you are it. Nobody else, even though it sounds like other organizations or companies can do it, you have to be a licensed insolvency trustee to take this on.
0: That's right. And that's important for people to know because as you just alluded to, Elaine, if you sit down and you start to Google consumer proposals in BC, you know, you'll know you see a lot of trustees advertising, but you'll also see a lot of independent debt consultants, credit counselors, different folks who may have one of two objectives. One is to steer you away from a proposal because they want you to go and see them and they'll make money on fees and get more money back, so on and so forth. The other Um, objective uh, might be to to just make sure that you don't understand all the circumstances where a consumer proposal can apply and they want to charge you some fees for it. So either they're going to make you kind of scared of a consumer proposal, um, or they're going to require you pay a bunch of upfront fees, they'll advise you on all of your options, do everything a trustee would do for free. But at the end of the day, you're still going to have to meet the trustee, um, do all the same legwork you'd have to do otherwise, and you get that service for free rather than having to pay an intermediary or an agent or be referred from someone somewhere else.
1: And the amount of work that Sands & Associates does with folks uh, in what, what are you, 18, 19, 20 offices now in British Columbia you guys mm-hmm. have this vast wealth of knowledge and experience of folks and their situations. So there's probably not a situation that you haven't come across, like based on just the number of people that you deal with.
0: Yeah, we, this is our thirty-first year in business. So we had our thirtieth anniversary last year, which somehow got overshadowed by a pandemic. But we understand that. So um, we've, we've been around a long time, and we help people all over the province. So just about any community in BC, uh, folks are reaching out to us, especially a lot these days. Um, you know, trying to understand the impact of death they've incurred during the pandemic and whatnot. Um, and the way that, that we approach things is we we understand, we empathize, we want to put ourselves in the shoes of the client, um, and really just validate their decision to come forward and see us and give them hope and options for the future
1: okay well let's let's pretend for a second that i come into your office or i guess we're doing it virtually i should say uh mm-hmm. and what are the what are the first kinds of things that you want to know from me and and what do i bring into that meeting
0: Yeah, we start but first by asking some basic questions and listening so first off why are you here so is there a specific Uh, concern that you have maybe it's just a hypothetical i want to know what this debt, what happens with this debt or before a sign on the dotted line what are the rights and remedies always really good stuff we're happy to give some free advice but often i'm here because i can't sleep i know i've got too much debt i'm getting collection calls they're threatening to call my workplace or seize my wages so i want to identify the problem right away Uh, from there we move into understanding and assessing the situation so just some basic questions who do you owe money to and approximately how much uh, what's your monthly budget looking like? Do you have income? Can you depend on it? Um, do you own any assets? Um, if so, what are they? Do you have a vehicle? Do you have a house? Are there tools of to the trade? Um, and are you up to date with the government? Do you have all your taxes filed? So you might not know all of these answers right off the top of your head, and you might not know them in exact. But if you know in a general ballpark um, answers to those questions, that's what a trustee needs to start start to set out the options for you. And then it's just a matter of filling in all the details, getting you know documentation on the debts and pay stubs for the income. But it just starts with a really basic general discussion. Of what are you facing and what are your objectives?
1: Excellent. So what are you... Um, I guess probably the, the first sit down is maybe the hardest for folks to, to sort of gather up their, their uh, strength to do.
0: Well, I think even the first phone call. So, you know, uh, just, you know, sometimes people t- tell me, you know, my hand was shaking over the phone and I tried three times and finally I completed your number. And usually that's the hardest step that they take because right away the phone's going to be answered by someone who deals with people in tough situations all day. And I don't hire anybody who judges somebody because of their debt. So it's someone that's going to be respectful, empathize with you. You're going to feel uh, better than you felt before you made the call when you're just making that first appointment with us. Uh, you know, from there in the initial consultation, uh, you know it really is a case of showing the person that they've made the right decision to sit down with Sands and & Associates, and oftentimes it's over the phone or it's by Zoom these days with the pandemic, but it's just showing that we care. We care about them as an individual. We care about their financial situation, uh, and there's no judgment that they'll receive in that first meeting or anywhere after. So we'll ask the general questions. We'll start to put together some solutions and options, and then we'll check in and see you know, what are your objectives and how do these fit.
1: Okay. I want to mention the website, sans-trustee.com is the website. Uh, If you want to initiate that first, uh, make an appointment and and get to talk to somebody, 1-800-661-3030 is the phone number. So let's talk about some of the options that you help a person look at when they're coming in for some debt advice.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's five we're going to try to get through in today. And first one is, is pretty well the default, can you pay off the debt in full? So you just need a little bit of help with your budgeting, but nothing else beyond that. If your account is still in good standing, maybe we'll give you some coaching on, hey, maybe you can negotiate a reduced interest rate with your lender, or maybe we'll explain to you some other provisions of the law where you've got this vehicle that's really constrained you and you can't afford to make all the payments. We'll explain to you how the seize or sue provisions in the province of BC actually give you a great option if the vehicle had to be seized, that would end the entire uh, commitment with you. Um, So there's a lot of benefits to trying to pay off the debt in full but the cons on that side is it's often not possible if you're not able to make significantly more than the minim- minimum payment due each month um, you're really going to be on a long-term plan to pay down the debt um, and even if you've got a great budget sometimes things happen to that budget outside you know shocks to the system which might make this plan just not possible for you but we'll always look at can you pay off the debt in full as a first option
1: okay what's the second solution for folks
0: well, the second one is sometimes what people have already tried before they've gotten to us. So oftentimes they'll say, I've tried to pay it off in full, I can't. Second option we look at is what well, can you consolidate by borrowing? Can you get a bank consolidation loan, for example? Uh, benefits there are typically you're not going to juggle multiple debts and payment due dates, and you're typically going to have a lower interest rate than you would have in your other credit cards. Maybe you're at 11%, 12% with a consolidation compared to, you know, 19 or 20 or even more than that with a credit card. Uh, The downsides to this is you are going to repay it back all the debt in full, so you might get a break on the interest, but it's still going to be a significant amount of payments if your debts are significant to begin with. Um, And sometimes people are still okay with that, they'd rather pay their debts in full, it takes a long time. But the big issue is it's very difficult to qualify for a consolidation loan because often a bank is going to want you to have some assets you could pledge as collateral, or they're going to want you to involve a cosigner, which is almost always a really bad idea. so if you're sitting there about to consolidate your debts, considering whether to get a cosigner, I would say just pause, have a consultation with a trustee, and then decide if you want to do so. But oftentimes, a consolidation loan is very difficult to qualify without a cosigner or without pledging assets.
1: I know that uh, credit counseling services, that's going to be one of your options as well, uh, because we get inundated with uh, advertisements and everywhere about how they work. But I'd like to look at the last two, which I think are the most important ones. And this must be very hopeful for folks when you start talking to about solution four and five.
0: Yeah, exactly. So solution four is the option of filing a consumer proposal. So a consumer proposal is going to achieve the same as that consolidation we just talked about. You're going to put all the debts together. Um, instead of having a reduced interest rate, you're going to have a zero interest rate, which is obviously a lot more affordable. And in a consumer proposal, you're going to pay back what you can afford to pay back on your debt. So it might be a reduction of, you know, 20 or 30 percent, all the way up to 80, even 90% of your debt might be reduced if what you can actually afford to repay back is just the portion that that fits in your budget so oftentimes a good rule of a good guideline to consider um, is that a consumer proposal should so should start at roughly 30% repayment of the debt and then your trustee is going to basically adjust that based on your income and your other obligations to figure things out. But a consumer proposal gives you full protection from your creditors same protection as if you had filed a bankruptcy nobody can take you to court, call you harass you or do anything against you um, and it allows you to restructure your debts without resorting to a bankruptcy which should be your last resort. If nothing else works then you consider a bankruptcy but for two thirds of people that come to see a trustee they're able to make a consumer proposal the work. And they generally feel a whole lot of pride saying, you know, I, I could have considered a bankruptcy, you know, maybe I might have paid a little bit less on the debts, but I faced this head on, I made the settlement that I could afford, the creditors agreed to it, and everyone respects everyone at the end of the day there.
1: Yeah, and I know this is the last one, but it's certainly not the least, and it doesn't have to be in this order, and that's just filing for personal bankruptcy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so bankruptcy, it, you know, it might be something we consider early on in the meeting, but it's generally the, you know, the the option that you would choose if none of the other options are available to you. So you know you can't pay the debt off, you can't get a consolidation loan, a proposal or credit counseling just doesn't work. Well, bankruptcy is going to reduce your debt by 100%. It's going to get you down to owing nobody anything and not paying any further interest. It's going to give you that bankruptcy protection that people generally know about, meaning it's a ceasefire. So you don't need to worry about being harassed or having anything seized from you. Uh, Most people who file for bankruptcy, if they're considered low income, uh, it's over in nine months and typically what they pay is $200 a month for nine months for a total of $1,800 and that could be to get rid of $10,000, $100,000 or even a $1 million worth of debt. Bankruptcy doesn't scale at all based on the amount of the debt, it just scales based on your income. So if you're not low income, you'll have to pay a bit more than $1,800 but for a low income individual, they don't pay their debts any further, they pay $200 a month for nine months. Uh, The downside of a bankruptcy primarily is that it will impact your credit. So for six years after you finish the bankruptcy, it's going to be noted, but you can rebuild far quicker than those six years. So it's really a good option to consider for someone if nothing else works.
1: Okay. And in closing, I just want to say the website is so good. It's just so filled with such good questions and answers that you, that you have, and that you will uh, gain some knowledge from sands-trustee.com is the website. 1-800-661-3030 is the phone number to set up that uh, first consultation uh, and, uh, and connect with Sands and Associates. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So consumer proposals, uh, I know we talk about them all the time on the show, but it's kind of a new concept, relatively new concept. And uh, it's well worth spending this time on it because it's so interesting and people really benefit as a result of either finding out more about it and then taking action to deal with their debt. So we're going to kind of do a deep dive on consumer proposals in this segment. And I think the only thing that I want to say before I give it to Blair to talk more about it is that it's a pretty awesome alternative to consolidation loans, if you've been entertaining that idea, or declaring bankruptcy. And uh, so let's start, Blair, uh, going through the, the real basics of the consumer proposal. And I'm kind of right, right, that it, it's relatively new for a lot of folks.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Elaine. Um, and, you know, oftentimes I, I'm used to this reaction when someone first hears about a consumer proposal, they say, well, well that can't be true. That sounds too good to be true. And <laughs> yeah. a lot of times with finances, you know, it definitely, if something has to, to pass the skepticism test, if it seems too good to be true, it often is. That's not the case with consumer proposals. So proposals as an option have been around since about the late '90s or so, but it's really in the last ten years, especially the last five years, where they've really grown in popularity. If people have learned about the option. They've come to you know even say you know I, I don't even want to hear about a bankruptcy. I want to know about a consumer proposal um, because there are significant benefits to filing it over a bankruptcy. We're going to talk about that, but it's to the point where about two thirds of people that come and see a trustee in the province of BC, they don't file a bankruptcy. They file a consumer proposal. They avoid the bankruptcy all together and they're better off for having done so. So what a consumer proposal allows you to do is it's a unique tool. It's only offered through a licensed insolvency trustee. So nobody else is empowered to help you with the proposal except for a trustee. It allows you to consolidate your debt legally. You don't have to resort to loans. You don't have to file a bankruptcy or do a credit counseling program. And it allows you to consolidate all your debts into a single amount stop all of the ongoing interest charges and collection activities. So eliminate all those calls or even any court actions against you. Everything stops and you repay just what you can afford to repay on the debt. So oftentimes it's in the range of 20 to 40% of what's outstanding and that's in full satisfaction of the amount owing. So every circumstance varies and sometimes people can offer as low as 20 cents on the dollar. Sometimes, you know, it's significantly higher if they have the ability to pay, but an example, you know, this, typical example we see every day is someone who had built up, say, $20,000 of debt, and it might be across income taxes, student loans, credit cards, and payday loans. They might offer a consumer a proposal to repay 30% of that total amount, so roughly $6,000. And then it's just a question of how quickly can they repay that $6,000. In many cases, they'll make a monthly payment of $166 over a three-year period, the balance of the debt, the 70% that remains unpaid, that's written off at the end of the consumer proposal. So you can imagine someone feeling hopeless, $20,000 of credit card or payday loan debt, my gosh, the minimum payments are high and I'm not even drawing down the balance. That can be sorted in about $166 a month over a three-year period without a bankruptcy. Uh, that's the power of a consumer proposal.
1: That's pretty amazing. Um, what's sort of the... Um you know, between this amount and that amount, do most people fall in? Or is there very specific guidelines to a consumer proposal and what you have to owe to to be able to use it?
0: Yeah, everything is well defined in the law, and the range of someone who can file a consumer proposal is you have to owe at least a thousand dollars. Now, there's no one that typically files a proposal for a thousand dollars, but people do for debts of you know five, seven, or even ten thousand. And the maximum amount you can owe, and this is all excluding your mortgage on your principal residence, so just your typically your unsecured your consumer debts, that can be as high as two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So it's very rare cases where someone comes to see us and their debt doesn't fall within the $1,000 to $250,000, and those are the guidelines within a consumer proposal. So you have to owe within that range and legitimately not be able to pay the debt. So if you've got a bunch of money in the bank, but you don't want to pay back 100% of the debt, well, a consumer proposal might not be the right option. But if you're doing the best that you can, you just had some really tough circumstances, and you know you're only making minimum payments, you might be in debt for 30 more years if that's all you can do, a consumer proposal allows you it's a maximum term of up to five years, and most of the time people pay off their proposals in as little as two to three years.
1: Is there a such thing as a joint consumer proposal?
0: There is, yeah, and that's something that's getting more and more common as well. So in a situation where people have debts in common, so this is often with a married couple, if they've got some credit cards where they're supplementary cardholders with each other, or if they're both joint on the mortgage, for example, or on some car loans, they've got the option of filing a joint consumer proposal together. And where that can make a whole lot of sense um, is if it's a situation where they both have debt and they will be dealing with everything as a household, but individually it might be the case, well, one person might really be looking at a bankruptcy because let's say it's a stay at home spouse and there's very little income coming in and they couldn't afford to do a proposal on themselves, um, they can file a joint proposal with their spouse and therefore avoid the bankruptcy of one of the spouses. They just both do a proposal together for the whole household to have dealt with its financial issue.
1: But you don't have to do it. You don't have to do a joint proposal with your spouse. You can you can either be be out of it entirely or do something different.
0: Well, Elaine, you don't even have to tell your spouse you've done a proposal, if I'm being frank with you. So... Wow. in general uh you know we encourage people to be very open you know within their their families about their finances but a proposal is a very private process and if you've got no debt that's shared with a spouse um you wouldn't they wouldn't necessarily get any notice about it so it's not mandatory that both couples um file a joint proposal we definitely encourage people to be honest and open with their with their partners but it's generally a private process you can do individually or a couple can do it together if they do share some debt
1: well, that's interesting. Um, so what are some of the questions that people have? Cause you guys, cause you at Sands and Associates and all of your colleagues answer a lot of questions in a day and a week and a month. So what mm-hmm. kinds of questions are people asking when they come in the door about them?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, first off, is it too good to be true? So so we, yeah. we start off there and we say, yeah, I can I can show you a lot of case studies where this works and just about every case the proposal gets approved and the person's happy, but it's also, how does this apply to my situation? So what debts can I consolidate in a consumer proposal? And it's almost limitless within what you can include in a consumer proposal, there's just a few exceptions, but for the most part, consumer and business debts. so things like credit cards, lines of credit, overdrafts and payday loans, those are typical unsecured debts included, no problem. Uh, income tax debts like GST, uh, business taxes, payroll remittances, or just what you owe know, the government for past tax years filed, uh, a consumer proposal, along with the bankruptcy, are the only ways you're going to be able to reduce that debt. So if you owe CRA some money, they're definitely being better now with, with pandemic and you know allowing longer time to pay, but they'll never agree to a 20, a 30, a 50% settlement with you. That has to come through a consumer proposal. So it's a very powerful option for tax debt. Uh, student loans can be dealt with as well, federal, provincial, or private student loans. Um, ICBC debts. so things can happen with an accident not covered or even just some past premiums unpaid, that can be included in a consumer proposal. Um, some debt that you might have signed a guarantee for or co-signed, that can be included in a consumer proposal. And even things like, so let's say you've got a mortgage and the house is going into foreclosure and you know there's going to be a shortfall once the house is sold, that shortfall can be included in a consumer proposal. So just about every debt that you have, again, it's a short list of things that can't be included in a consumer proposal. And there are things like, you know, child support, alimony, or debts that you've incurred due to fraud. Typical things that you wouldn't want to or, or want someone to be able to reduce, those are kept out. But everything else you can restructure in a consumer proposal.
1: Okay, I just want to mention too, um, the website Sans, uh, Sans-Trustee.com is so great because it's got so much good information that answers pretty much every question you can come up with. Uh, and I'm going to, it's Sans-Trustee.com or you can also just give them a call, uh, sit down with them virtually uh, at 1-800-661-3030. So you kind of mentioned car payments or mortgage, but I know that you added that as something that, that we can go a little bit deeper on.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of people think, well, I can't do a consumer proposal if I have a mortgage or a car loan because that's going to force me to sell the house or they're going to come and seize the car. Uh, And that's false. So most people, if they've got a mortgage, they just continue to make the mortgage payments. You know, if they wanted to sell the house and there would be a loss, okay, if they can deal with that loss in a consumer proposal. But typically people just want to know, can I continue to make my mortgage payments? Is everything going to be okay? And the answer is yes. If you file a consumer proposal, your house is not suddenly going to be foreclosed on and sold if you're up to date on the mortgage. Uh, Same thing with a car loan. So people think if I file a proposal, does that mean the bank is going to come and seize the car? And the answer is as long as you continue to make those car payments, the bank doesn't want to seize the car. They make their money by you paying it back in full, paying the interest over time. So a consumer proposal is not an event of default on your mortgage or an event of default on a car loan. You get the option if you want to walk away from those obligations, you can do so. But for the most part, people want to be able to continue to make those payments and a proposal allows you to do so.
1: Okay. Now we talked of you've mentioned, you've used that phrase a couple of times, you know, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. And this is where we're going to answer one of those questions, which I know people have on their minds all the Mm -hmm. time is what does it cost me to file a consumer proposal? How does Sands and associates, how are they able to be in business? Because obviously somebody pays you and how does, and how does that work? How does that equation work out?
0: Yeah, and this is what I'm I'm so happy to answer head on, Elaine, because the answer I think is what customers would want to hear is it costs you nothing to reach out to a trustee to figure out if a proposal is an option. If it ends up that a proposal is an option, let's say you've got that $20,000 of debt that we talked about and you're going to pay back $166 a month at 30% repayment, that's all that you pay. There are no added fees, there's no fee for service for the trustee, what happens is the trustee gets paid by a government tariff and what you deposit into the consumer proposal, so if you're going to pay back $6,000 over roughly a three-year period, um, the trustee is going to get a portion of that before the rest of it is distributed to your creditors. So one way to look at it is that your creditors are actually paying the cost of your consumer proposal. You're paying back 30% on the debt, that's what you can afford, and you're not asked to pay a cent more than that. Um, The fees all get deducted before your creditors receive any payments. But it's also important to know you don't have to come up with any upfront fees to file a proposal. So at Sands & Associates, the day you sit down to file your proposal, we say, okay, next month, let's start your first payment, what day works for you? And the next month we will withdraw that say, $166 to keep the example. There's no, again, upfront fee, no retainer that you need to make. Uh, It's very, very affordable. And typically, it's so much less than what people have been paying on their debts that almost immediately the household is in a better financial situation.
1: Okay. And our last question, because we've just got about 30 seconds, when would a consumer proposal be a good solution? Because I know that you've got a nice list that sort of encompasses a lot of things.
0: Yeah, and I know time-wise we want to be, be be cognizant of that. So it's typically in a situation where you can afford to make some payments on your debts, but you can't afford to pay the full amount. So if you owed a million dollars and you've got almost no income, you're not going to be able to do a proposal that gives, you know, 20 or 30 cents from the dollar. You just don't have the means. But if you need an option, that's going to help you consolidate your debt, reduce the amount that you have to pay back all of the interest and give you protection from your creditors, a proposal is going to be the best option to consider if you're able to afford partial repayment but can't afford to pay in full.
1: You're listening to Dollars and Cents, and you've been listening to Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. So what you need to know about co-signing, and I can say, Blair, that from the very first time I started working with you, uh, I had no idea of the issues around co-signing. I always thought of it as a place uh that I was coming from and helping somebody, which essentially there is some help involved for sure, but um all the the pitfalls that can come up can uh, can come from it as well. So from co-signing loans with your kids maybe for joint credit cards or with your spouse, but there's lots that you need to know before signing up for this. So I'm so glad that we're going to sort of go through all the ins and outs of this thing.
0: Yeah, I'm thrilled that we're covering the topic as well, Elaine, because just as you've said, you know, a lot of people, uh, they'll co sign to help somebody out and expect, you know, that signature might be the last that they'll ever hear about it because, of course, the person's going to make all the payments. You know, of course, their their co signing will never, you know, come back to haunt them. Um, But I see again and again people who have co signed who just didn't understand exactly what they were signing on for. Um, So for today, we're going to really go through the basics. What does it mean to co sign a debt? Um, What are some circumstances? circumstances that can arise and you know when is it wise to co versus not so it's one of those areas where you want to tread with extreme caution uh, before you agree to co-sign or to co-borrow with somebody else because you know all the intentions might be there but quite often life happens um, and some unexpected events can create some challenges for the person who originally borrowed which might mean you as the co-signer could be on the hook.
1: Yeah. And sometimes there's emotional problems or because it's relationship, but it could often be a really close relationship. And then, and then what do you do? Like, it's just horrific next steps. And yet, you know, you originally signed up to help. So I think it's great. So let's start, uh, Blair. Uh, can we go through the basics of what people should be aware of when it comes to either joint or co debt?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. In in simple terms, what most folks really are surprised to learn is when you co-sign a debt together, both parties are equally legally responsible for repaying 100% of the unpaid balance to the lender. So it doesn't matter if you expected, well, if I co-sign, there's two people, it means I'm 50-50 liable. No, typically the way that the liability is set up, it's called joint and several liability, which means if you're the co-signer and your co-borrower doesn't make all the payments as the agreed terms would stipulate, the bank or the lender can demand that anyone listed in that loan or in that agreement repay the entire balance and not half. So right off the top, if you're cosigning for somebody, realize, and especially say if there's a couple of cosigners, it's not going to be divided equally amongst you. It's going to be whichever pocket has the money that can be taken from it. Um, that's where the lender can go and get a hundred percent of the debt that's outstanding. So that's really important. You know, another thing that people don't always realize is the conduct of the original borrower, uh, really matters in terms of what could sometimes trigger what's called an acceleration clause. So if you're co-signing for a debt and there's certain payments that are due and the original borrower starts to miss those payments, um, certain loans or debts debt that can be co-signed have what's called the acceleration clause, which means if you're in breach of certain terms like missing payments, um, the lender sometimes has the right to demand 100% repayment of the amounts outstanding. And again, as I've mentioned, that can come from either you or from the co-signer or sorry, from the original borrower or from the co-signer. Um, so that can be something you've never planned for, you thought, okay, if the person missed Misses payments, I'll be able to step in um, and I can make those payments in their stead, but realize that the person misses payments and there's this acceleration clause there, you might not be able to just step in and make some payments, you might be on the hook for 100% of the debt due and payable immediately.
1: And I know in this next little segment, you go into a little bit further because uh, the idea that co-signing a debt means that you're both basically making it easier for a creditor to come after their money or recover their money if something goes wrong. And that's where things, uh, I guess, get pretty serious pretty quickly.
0: Exactly, Elaine. So as I said, they can can demand immediate repayment of the outstanding balance in full, which could be quite shocking, um, the co- the contact and threats from collection agents, that's going to start happening as well. Again, you are you owe the money 100% as a cosigner, so expect that they will follow up with you pretty aggressively. Uh, your credit history can also take a hit. So um, if your original borrower has defaulted, you're the cosigner and you're not able to satisfy all the terms according to through the loan agreement or the acceleration clause, that can be negatively impacted on your credit bureau. And also you should be aware if you co-signed a debt, it's often gonna report on both your bureau and the original borrower's bureau or credit report. And that can reduce your ability to borrow in the future if a creditor looks and says, well, you've got all of these debts and you've got this debt that you've co-signed, everything like that counts. So do be aware that co-signing can have an impact on your credit rating as well. You know, the worst case is if the original borrower can't pay, and you're not able to satisfy what what, you're, what they're looking for as the guarantor or cosigner, you could be subject to some legal action, which could include asset seizures, wage garnishment, um, you know, just a very bad, stressful, and difficult time that you probably didn't contemplate when you sat down to cosign the debt.
1: Yeah, and uh, stressful for sure and emotional, and that's where that emotional stuff can can really be harder than the actual debt sometimes. Especially, mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, that could lead to relationship breakdown and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, so let's go, it, so let's say you've decided you're going to go ahead, you're going to go ahead regardless, what are some of the things or are there any things that a consumer uh, can be aware of in more common situations where they might be considering taking on somebody's debt? Because I'm sure there's some some things that you, you can be aware of before you actually start, which are good tips for folks.
0: That's right, Elaine. So the, the number one thing and this comes, you know, very common when you're dealing with financial instruments is to really understand the terms of borrowing and who is legally responsible for what. That's just incredibly important to know upfront exactly what you're signing on for um, and having your eyes wide open. And you've got to be careful with a certain certain types of accounts. So one is credit cards. You're going to want to read all the terms, the agreements closely and check the fine print. And I know how, how boring and, and, you know, it can cause your eyes to glaze over, but there can be some really important things in there. Um, you know, when you're doing even a supplementary card, you know that could be an additional card holder, a co-borrower or a co-applicant, those terms can have some different meanings from credit card company to credit card company. And even the primary cardholder, they're normally responsible uh, for paying for purchases made by any additional cardholder. So it's really a shared liability of everyone uh, who's on the account. You shouldn't assume that just because you're a secondary cardholder, you're not liable for any debts that are incurred by the primary cardholder. Quite often, um, the terms state that secondary cardholders can be held responsible for outstanding balances, even if they've never signed the original card application, just by using the card. Sometimes you'll find in the fine print that when you make your first transaction as a supplementary card holder, um, that you've now agreed to be responsible for all amounts owing on that card, even historic charges that you weren't involved in. So it's not every card is like that, but getting a supplementary credit card um, that's making you joint a co-signer on a on someone else's credit card uh, it can be risky it's something you really want to read the fine print um, know exactly what you're signing on for and just finally on this if you do have a shared account whether it's a supplementary card or, or co-applicant you've got to make sure there's clear communication between yourself and the original um, or primary cardholder. you've got to make sure you're seeing the statement you're talking about purchases uh, because otherwise again you could be held liable for conduct you didn't know about um, and you just find out about after the fact.
1: Okay. Now, uh, we've just got about a minute and a half left in this segment. And I was thinking, I wanted to ask you before we, before we leave this, what about the shared obligation? Uh, it seemed like a very official term, uh, for debts between spouses and other family members. It, is that worth explaining just a little bit before we wrap up?
0: Yeah, I think that's really important, and we can definitely cover this relatively quickly. There's just so much good information to, to get through always. Um, but what folks need to understand is there is no shared obligation that's created between family members, between parents and childrens, brothers, sisters, and especially between spouses. So, just because a husband and 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 wife have two separate credit cards, it doesn't mean that a creditor could ever collect from the other person if they're not on that account. So oftentimes I advise couples to keep things very separate. Um, you know, there's not that much benefit of sharing all of your credit um, just in case if there is a situation where a credit card can't get paid, at least only one person is going to be held liable and not both of you.
1: Oh, well, that's really good information because I would think that the opposite would have been true. Uh, but in fact, it isn't. And here's the other thing. in wrapping up, I want to just mention uh, the website. It's sans-trustee.com. And the reason why I mention it, it's just so full of good questions and answers explanations, really thoughtful explanations on all kinds of topics when it comes to debt and credit and bankruptcy and all of those things. So if this is a bit overwhelming, go to the website and check it out. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. I think this is going to be a good segment, Blair. It's about understanding the different types of debt. And of course, uh, if you don't know Blair, he's a licensed insolvency trustee from Sands & Associates, super knowledgeable about so many aspects or all the aspects of this whole process. And I think this is an important segment just because we forget about the different pieces of uh, common consumer debt. And there's a lot of differences between the two. So Blair, in this segment, can you just start by kind of walking us through some of the most common types of debt that people have?
0: Yeah, with with pleasure, Elaine, because I think I, I I love doing this show because sometimes we just really go down to the basics. And it's so important you've got a good foundation of, you know, basic financial concepts, and then you build all the complexity on top of that. So this we're going to start at the, at the very basic types of debt. Um, there's two main types of debt that we're going to talk about today. There's what's called unsecured debt, and there's a bunch of subtypes to that we're going to talk about, and also secured debt. And the big difference, and the one we're going to talk about first, is unsecured debt. Um, It means that it's debt that you incur where you haven't pledged an asset as collateral, whereas secured debt, it's the opposite of that. It's debt you incur where you have pledged an asset as collateral. So a secured debt commonly might be a mortgage or a car loan, where unsecured debt um, is almost everything else. So things like standard credit cards and overdrafts, payday loans and personal loans, cell phone plans, utilities, um, different things like that, uh, those are typically unsecured debts, uh, which means if you're not able to pay those debts, you know, there's not an immediate recourse, meaning that someone's going to come and, you know, take an asset from you right away. uh, But there's still a lot of things that your creditors can do, uh, you know, right off the top. They can start by charging you some fees and penalties when you start to miss payments. They can start to accumulate interest on the debt, uh, even increase your interest rate if you're in default. Some agreements provide for an extra rate of interest if you've started to miss payments. Um, They can start to engage collection agencies, you know, to phone you at home or at the office at various hours through the day. So it could be very distressing. but generally, unsecured creditors have not as much power as a secured creditors uh, unless they decide to go through court and actually sue you for payment. Um, and at that point, an unsecured debt becomes very serious because they're able to actually go and seize either wages or assets um, if you've been sued. So unsecured debt, um, typically very common. Um, if you do neglect it, it can become quite serious uh, with all the things that we've mentioned before.
1: Let's, um, can we go to what a cosine debt is? Because we, you know, it's something that we might be asked to help someone with by cosigning something, uh, either a loan or, or a debt.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple of categories we want to talk with, it's typically with unsecured debts, but it could also be with a secured debt, but a cosigned debt uh, means that there's more than one party that's legally responsible for 100 percent of the unpaid debt. So it's not a 50/50 liability, like a lot of people believe, um, it's a joint and several liability. So if there's a cosigned debt, you've got to be careful, you've got to be aware that if the other person doesn't pay, um, you could be pursued for 100 percent of the outstanding balance. Um, another really common type of unsecured debt uh, is government debt, and most people are surprised to hear, oh, well, the government is unsecured, they can't just come and take my assets. Well, well, no, they can't, um, but they can take some steps that actually make it Possible for them to to really have an impact upon you. So, by default, government debts are unsecured, um, but if CRA decides to take extra steps, they can make their debt um, stronger than a typical unsecured debt. They can start to place a lien on your property, uh, which basically requires that the property is sold or if you refinance, they can take a piece of it. Um, They can start to seize your bank account, you know, just about overnight. They can freeze your bank account and take the funds there. um, And they can to a wage garnishment against you. So what's really different uh, with government debt and other standard unsecured debt is for the standard unsecured debt, the credit cards, the lines of credit, so on and so forth, they need to hire lawyers, go to court, give you notice of all these proceedings before they can take extra steps to seize assets or wages. But with government debt, uh, there's no court application required. They can essentially do some internal adjustments uh, and then suddenly you've got a claim on your property or your wages are being seized. So be very aware with government debt. it starts off unsecured, but it can get very significant. And often this is triggered by personal income tax or GST or HST debt uh, or even some benefit overpayments like EI or CPP or finally with student loans. Those are your main sources of government debt.
1: Okay, and I want to throw in here too, if if you're already thinking, okay, I need some help with this because I don't quite understand where I fall into this category and need to take some action, the number to get a hold of Blair and at Sands & Associates in general is 1-800-661-3030 or their website, sands-trustee.com, and set up that appointment and uh, see if you can't get a handle on the situation. Can you explain a bit more about secured debts and the sort of the kind of the difference between between a secured debt and unsecured status when it comes to dealing with the debt?
0: Yeah, so a secured debt means simply that you've pledged an asset or maybe multiple assets as collateral to a lender. So what collateral means is that if you don't pay, they have the right to come and seize the asset that's been played have been pledged. So some common examples are a mortgage or a vehicle financing. So in both of those cases, uh, those debts are tied by the creditor to either having a lien or a charge on your home um, or on the vehicle until you've paid off the mortgage or the loan in full. So when someone says, you know, me and the bank, we own a nice house together. um, That's what they mean is that the bank has a charge on that house because of the mortgage. And it's only once the mortgage is paid off that the person will own that home in full. Uh, quite often banks or finance companies, they'll they'll want you to pledge an asset if they're consolidating your debt, uh, giving you a consolidation loan. They're going to want to get some extra security. Um, But you also need to be aware that some creditors can create a secured charge even after the fact. And this often happens with things like a mechanic or a builder's lien. So if someone's worked on your car and you haven't paid them appropriately, they've got the right to put a secured charge uh, against your car. And same thing if someone's improved your house and haven't been paid, they've got the right to put a lien against their making their unsecured debt uh, a secured debt that you have to deal with.
1: Okay. now I know that uh, talking about vehicles or cars or trucks, uh, lots of people take out loans for that. And I know that B.C. has a pretty unique set of rules when it comes to vehicle loans. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, this is something that people absolutely need to be aware of. And it's something that typically you're not going to find out from just, you know, uh, going through and not asking the right questions, just signing on the dotted line, so to speak. But what happens in B.C., is one of the only jurisdictions in Canada where what's called as seize or sue applies. And what that means is that if you finance the consumer good, like a car, for example, and you're not able to make the payments on that car, uh, most people are very concerned that, oh my gosh, I owe $30,000 on this car. You know, maybe it's worth fifteen dollars to $20,000 now because I've been driving it for a year. Um, if I give this car back, I'm going to be held accountable for the shortfall. So meaning that if they sell the car for 15000 and I owe 30 i am getting a bill for 15000 So I better just keep making the payments on this car. I'll stretch and I'll do whatever I can to just not have that triggered. What folks need to realize is that in the province of BC, um, if you default on a consumer debt obligation like a car loan, for example, it forces the creditor to decide to do one of two things. They can either decide to say, yes, we're going to seize the vehicle from you, or they can say, no, keep the vehicle, we're going to sue you for full payment on the debt. But what they can't do is seize the vehicle and then hold you accountable for the shortfall. So this is, again, different than many other provinces. So in where I'm from in Ontario, uh, originally, if someone had a car and they the car is seized, they're definitely held accountable for that shortfall. But in the province of BC, if that car was seized by the creditor and they recovered say $15,000, and there's $30,000 owing on the loan, that debt is extinguished. So loud and clear, that debt is gone if the car has been surrendered. So the worst case is sometimes people decide, okay, well, I'm gonna sell the vehicle, I'm gonna get the $15,000 back, and I'm gonna to continue to pay this loan off, I'm gonna pay off the 30,000, where they would have been just so much better off if they allow the creditor to seize the asset and that extinguishes the debt.
1: I'm gonna give you the website for Sands & Associates at sands-trustee.com, a great place to go uh, to check out some more answers. And, and if you didn't quite catch all of that, they certainly explain it on the website. It's filled with good questions Answers or give them a call at 1 800 661 3030 and get that first free consultation as well as to find an office near you. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time.
0: The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKW.